millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A third round of talks between delegations from Russia and Ukraine has ended, with Kyiv citing a small amount of progress on opening humanitarian corridors. News correspondent Oli Barrett will bring us the latest from Riga in Latvia, where he is tonight. Serious concerns mount of a fuel crisis in Ireland as fears grow of petrol pump queues. You're paying double what you paid before, you know. It's gone just outrageous, you know. And later, St. Patrick's Day, tourists face soaring hotel costs. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. Tonight, Ukraine says positive results were had earlier today at talks on humanitarian corridors. Well, joining me now is news correspondent Oli Barrett from Riga in Latvia. And Oli, before we get to that, you're in Riga because Western operations um, have, uh, be, have, have shut down, essentially, operations in Moscow. Uh, tell us about the situation with the media there in Russia. That's right. Vladimir Putin signed uh, a new law uh, last week, which effectively outlaws what the Russians call fake news. And it means that if journalists don't report official sources in Russia when it comes to covering the war in Ukraine, they can face up to 15 years in jail. Now, bear in mind that the Russians don't even call it a war in Ukraine. So even me saying that out loud on air in Russia could get me in trouble. And so it's become very difficult, if not impossible, for journalists to do their job inside Russia. And so many are leaving and, uh, and working out where to cover Russia from. We've chosen Riga in Latvia. It's, it borders Russia. It borders Belarus. It has a large minority of Russian-speaking people. It's a good place uh, to cover what is going on in Russia, unencumbered by those new Kremlin restrictions, which make life very difficult indeed for journalists, if not very dangerous. Uh, now, back to the story on the humanitarian corridors that are being put in place um, within Ukraine. You're hearing some developments in relation to those corridors and, and some, a, a, a bit of positivity, a bit of progress in the area of getting people to safety. A little bit, yeah. We had those uh, latest rounds of discussions in Belarus today between a Ukrainian and Russian delega delegation. The Ukrainian delegation did describe a little progress, they said, towards establishing humanitarian corridors. And we do hear that there will be another attempt tomorrow morning to open some of those up. But there's still a huge amount of scepticism. Both sides actually during those talks in Belarus blamed each other for the humanitarian corridors and the ceasefires around them not having worked so far. There were 
four offered by the Russians today out of four Ukrainian cities. But the Ukrainians described that arrangement that was put in place by the uh, Kremlin as immoral because the routes out from those cities went to Russia and to Belarus. And that, uh, the Ukrainian government says, is not where people want to flee to. So uh, still a large amount of scepticism remains about whether tomorrow's iteration of all of this uh, will be any more successful than those we saw today and those attempts also at the weekend. Okay, Oli Barrett in Riga and Latvia for us tonight. Thank you for joining us. Um, well, I'm joined uh, by my by my panel tonight um, to discuss more on all of this. Um, Niall Boylan, broadcaster with Classic Hits FM, thank you for joining us. Um, Fianna Fáil, TD, Willie O'Dea, Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy, Independent TD, Verona Murphy, and Emeritus Professor at the European University Institute, Bridget Laffin. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. And we were talking there with Ollie about the humanitarian um, corridor, Willie O'Dea, and talk as well of what Ireland can do to help people who are fleeing Ukraine. We know that 1.5 million people, according to the UN, are already fleeing the country. It's a desperate situation for them. And that government is saying that we will take up to 100,000 people here. How are we going to do that? Well, first of all, it is a desperate situation, obviously. And uh, I mean, the, the best thing we can do is, and the other countries who will be taking in those refugees, the, the, the best thing we can do is to sort of be ready to accept them, you know, because otherwise the, there's going to be a huge build-up at the border and people mm. are literally going to be freezing with cold. You saw that in various news reports today. Now, the position is there's no question of a figure of 100,000 or 80,000 or whatever. Well, that's it's, what's it, being put out there. No, no, no. We have heard that. We've heard that from Anne Rabbit. We've the heard that from James Brown. The actual position is that there's no cap. There's no cap, you know. We're just estimating it may be 80 to 100,000. It probably will. Might be more, might be less, but it'll probably be in that region, certainly. So what, so, what, what plans so, are in place to, well, to well, deal well, with they will, that's, that's been discussed. That's, there have been a number of, of, of meetings among senior departmental officials over the weekend, and the Cabinet is, their, their various proposals put to the Cabinet will be discussing them in the morning. So, you know, we'd be probably better off discussing okay, that well, distance to our evening. one of the things that being discussed is, is the idea of modular homes, isn't it? What, well, which, which, that's, that's, that's a that's suggestion. That's like a longer-term project. Th th yeah, that's a longer-term project. I mean, you, you must remember a lot of the people, or the vast majority, I'd say, of those people who'll be coming in here because of this situation, uh, they envisage going back to, to Ukraine as quickly as possible. Remember, a lot of them are women and children, and their men folk are still back in Ukraine. Uh, there's a com there'll be a combination of things, the hotels, possibly the modular, although I'm not officially entitled to say this yet, but it's, it's been suggested, the modular homes. Um, one, one point I must make is that I've been absolutely blown away over the past couple of days with the amount of people who have contacted me, you know, asking me how can they make their homes available to, to refugees. Okay. These are people who are non-Ukrainians, Irish people. Yeah, because and we know we do know that that appeal was put out there, and people people are answering it. Bridget, to you on this, and um, the challenge that we'll, we'll face, I suppose, the government when they're coming up with, with their ideas on how to how to house people and how to help people best. Um, it's really a case, do you believe, of, of, of us rising to the occasion on it? I think we have to, because what we're facing is the largest movement of people since the Second World War in Europe, potentially, if this war gets even worse than it is already. And when you face that kind of challenge, then we have no choice. Poland already has taken, grosso modo, about a million people. 
into, and a lot of those are actually in Polish homes. So I think you'll see right across Europe, public opinion in my view across Europe is decisively on the side of the Ukrainians. They see this as an unprovoked attack. These are women and children leaving. The men are staying, they're staying to fight. So I think we will, but of course, uh, numbers matter. And if the numbers are enormous, people may begin to panic. So I think it's really important that we keep very calm about it and say that whatever we experience as a consequence, including increases in the price, unfortunately, of energy, energy and fuel, mm -hmm. is nothing to what the people of Ukraine are enduring. And they didn't ask for it. Okay, well, a little earlier, I spoke to CEO of the Irish Refugee Council, Nick Henderson. I began by asking him about that figure um, of at least 80,000 refugees potentially arriving into Ireland and the pressure uh, that the system is currently under. Yeah, short term and today, uh, there is no doubt that we cannot accommodate that number of people whatsoever. Uh, as you say, the existing asylum process is under considerable pressure. We have around 2,000 people who are already in, not even in direct provision, they're in emergency accommodation. They've not yet got to be in direct provision. And there's another 2,000 people who have refugee status but cannot leave uh, because of the housing crisis. However, uh, I think the government know that. Uh, we met with them on Friday and, and they are well aware of this. Uh, and we know... Uh, from what they've told us, that they're doing everything they can to try and bring on additional types of accommodation as soon as possible. Um, I think their projections are over the medium term, as in over a period of months. Uh, I don't expect that number to be arriving in the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. um, so I there's no doubt today we couldn't, but in due course, uh, I think we can and we have to. Uh, you mentioned alternative uh, types of accommodation. Are you referring mm. to modular housing um, being considered now by government to respond to this crisis in Ukraine uh, and a, a reduction of controls about what, what people can do when they arrive into this country? Is that what you're talking about, Nick? Yeah, I think there's two things there, that there is a role for the for Irish communities in terms of accommodating people, and we can discuss that. But this has to be a state-led process. Uh, so there has to be leadership, and I think we've had that so far. But it has to be state-led, and the state uh, and government administration, local authorities, government departments have the power to remove barriers to to integration uh, for people. So, for example, there is currently a delay in people accessing PPS numbers. Uh, that's a hangover from COVID and various things. Um, there can be a delay in people being vetted. Uh, there can be a delay in children who are in emergency accommodation, asylum accommodation, getting into school. We, we, those things have to be acted on immediately. Um, we can't be in a position in two months or six months that we're talking about uh, kids being in, stuck in hotels, Ukrainian kids being any kid, including Ukrainian kids, being stuck in hotels or ongoing persistent problems that prevent people being, being integrated uh, and integrating in, into Ireland. Okay, CEO of the Irish Refugee Council, Nick Henderson, thanks for joining us on the show tonight. Thanks.
No, what struck me there from listening to what Nick had to say is the system as it stands, um, really what this has done is shed a light on all the delays, all the holdups facing people currently seeking asylum, looking for refuge in this country. I mean, as you mentioned already, we have currently 5,000 people in this country, um, asylum seekers or refugees currently in this country who may be in uh, direct provision or other places. And they've been promised a pathway to their own home at some point in the future when we get rid of direct provision. But how we can possibly expect to deal with 80 to 100,000 if that is the number that's going to come along. And it is imperative that we try to do our best. There is no doubt about that. When I came in this evening, I watched a tweet and it was a picture of three women dead on the ground with a young child with a soldier kneeling over them. I can only imagine what it must be like. We have no idea when we worry about fuel costs, we worry about all those things, what it would be like to have missiles landing on your home. So it is imperative we do our best. It's not the people of Ireland that I don't trust to offer up their homes. It's not the people of Ireland that I don't trust to want to give. It's the government of Ireland that I don't trust. They've shown us in the past they're incapable of housing people. We currently have 9,000 people in temporary accommodation. We've over 60,000 people on a housing list in need of homes and social housing. We're incapable of sorting out that problem. We also have 2,000 people who are in direct provision, who've actually gained status and have nowhere to go right now, McCarthy. Um, There are a lot of problems in existence with our system. Um, Do you think that we're we're in a position to be able to do this and do this properly for the people who, who need help most now? Well, let's say, first of all, we have to play our part. The alternative is what? We tell Ukrainians that they're not welcome, so that isn't an option. So we have experience of doing things well on a much smaller scale. Um, So, for example, the Syrian and Congolese resettlement programmes, where there was a fixed number of people who came to define places in the country where local authorities, the HSE, the other statutory bodies, came together, put in place plans, um, and the local communities then rallied around those um, plans and they worked. Now, the difference here is that the scale is much, much greater. So, But the principle that this has to be a coordinated approach, so obviously government need to lead, but they need to ensure that there is um, coordination between all of the stakeholders and that this is done properly. And I agree with Willie on this. The community goodwill um, is, is, is something that I haven't witnessed. The amount of calls I'm getting as a local TD, I was at an event yesterday in my own hometown, where people were bringing um, provisions but also making donations. So so that is there, but that needs to be built on. And of course, there's always a fear that when this gets entangled in government bureaucracy, um, a hames could be made of it, for want of a better term, but we just need to get it right. We have no option, really. Do you believe the community goodwill is there, Verona? I do. A little girl called Maria started school. She arrived here last last Thursday with her mum to an aunt who already works in County Wexford. And she she started school this morning in Ballycanoe. So I think we can do it. Certainly, uh, last Friday, the regional independent group, of which I'm a member, called for an an all-government approach, which effectively would mean a one-stop shop at every entry point into the country that would encompass the Department of Justice, the Department of Social Protection, the Department of Housing and Local Government, and effectively education. Because this morning I had an email from a school in New Ross who tells me that they have 30 places available to take Ukrainian students if need be. So we have to coordinate. Do we have houses that would be befitting for families, mostly yeah, I mothers guess my, and I guess, children? I guess my, my question around that is, um, Verona, and your views on this matter would have been quite well known. Have you? No, cha- my views on this matter have never been asked. This is a completely I, different. Uh, like, I how wouldn't. Is it, how is it completely different? I'm these are, to, we have been told. I'm, that I, just we, to clarify, yeah. I'm referring to 
um, your views on asylum seekers in this country, which you made back in 2019, and do you know what they around were, people Claire? seeking asylum do you know here, what they were? that some had to be deprogrammed because they were coming they were very, with they angst were, they from They were taken zones. out of context, and we're not going to go back there. This is a different scenario where we have well, an Well, effect. it does in the context of a, of if, a two-tier refugee system Well, it's not two-tier refugee, because what we've said is that refugees fleeing war from the Ukraine would actually be giving effectively EU resident status. They can move around the EU as if they were EU citizens. They're not, pre they're not precluded yeah, from going to any permits, country. Yeah, health care, and yeah. all so of the these question things that are Do you that believe that the ever. Irish people will be accepting? Yes, I do. We've seen it already in the humanitarian approach and the reaction the people, the aid they've given. Uh, you know, we stand in solidarity with the Ukraine, as you've already heard from Neil. We are not in a position where we're losing our partners, our mothers, children. We have to accommodate these right. people as a matter of urgency. Okay, all right. Well, look, earlier today, I don't know if, if you saw this footage, have a look at it now. A man was arrested in Dublin after reversing a truck into the gates of the Russian embassy. Uh, we can take a look at this now. Um, there he is at the embassy and he re reversed into the gates. He then handed out some um, leaflets and he spoke to uh, a number of protesters that were gathered outside the embassy. He was later um, arrested and has been taken in for questioning in relation to that. When you see that footage, Bridget, do you think, uh, I suppose, what do you think of that action that took place today at the gates of well, the Russian ambassador? He, he certainly residence? wasn't. He certainly wasn't able to turn the truck and not avoid the gate. So he got himself into some trouble. I think it's a symbolic act. It's someone saying, "Well, I, it's more than symbolic, isn't it?" I mean, he, he reversed so full throttle into the, into the one embassy. One has to ask, does it help or not? That's the important question. And I think the way in which the Russian ambassador described it as a barbaric act, in my view, is shocking given what his country is doing in Ukraine. And he has also said that the response in Ireland is, is, that is more anti-Russian than anywhere else in Europe. I don't think that's the case. I think the response across Europe is very, very strong. I think the Russian diplomats are continuing to tell lies, including the Russian ambassador. So I don't have any sympathy for him, but I think protecting diplomatic assets okay. is something that all governments have to do. Uh, Willie, the, the, the counter view, I mean, the, 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 the view on it is, what we're hearing it from, you know, opposition parties and protesters alike, is that the Russian ambassador needs to go home. Well, <clears throat> I know the government has taken a particular view on this. I, I take a different view. I think he should have been expelled. I mean, not only, not only does he represent, uh, not only is he close to Putin, and he, therefore he, he represents this barbarity, he's the closest we can get to. But secondly, he came, this guy came into the door and lied through his teeth to the Foreign Affairs Committee, shamelessly lied to the now, Foreign Affairs Committee. That was a, that was a gross now, disrespect. In relation to that, like he will deny that he lied in that context and, well, that, well, he, well, he, uh, and that the information was furnished to him, arguably, um, from Vladimir Putin, from officials in Russia, and that's well, the information well, that he, well, well, he's, well, he's well, then well, given well, to well, the Iraq well, Committee. Well, look, look, I mean, you know, if you can, you, can, you can believe that if you wish, but I mean, my belief is that he lied and he lied on instructions. And uh, he, he, he's, he stated quite unequivocally to the Foreign Affairs Committee that we move troops around all the time. The fact that they're on the border just happens to be a coincidence. Now, who would believe that? This guy showed total disrespect okay. to the and, Parliament and of this the country. Need, and the need, I suppose, for diplomatic uh, channels to remain in place. That's always been the government's defence around this, McCarthy. I think sometimes governments and um, regimes do things that warrant a very strong, robust 
um, defence. And in this instance, um, my view is that the Russian ambassador should be okay. expelled. I think we, there's been a lot of discussion of late about you know, what Irish neutrality could mean. But this is one of the tools yeah. that neutral countries have in order to send very strong international messages Matt, of solidarity. Matt, Matt, just to get some clarity, I suppose, on where Sinn Féin stand on all of this, because the party has been accused of being fairly quiet on the matter. Yes, big on sending the Russian ambassador home, but regarding your voting record um, at EU level and the abstentions that Sinn Féin MEPs certainly um, have chosen to abstain around certain um, votes, what's the context around, um, say, the abstention on, 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 on the vote criticising Russia's actions and the annexation of Crimea? Well, there were never simply that. These are very lengthy resolutions that you know, incorporated quite an amount of, of text, and including sometimes very aggressive language. And as a former Sinn Féin MEP um, who engaged in a number of these votes, you know, our priority, our, um, um, our objective was always to try and ensure that, the, that Europe, but particularly Irish representatives, played a constructive role in trying to de-escalate these situations. But make no mistake about it, there is no... Um, you, there is no scope for um, placing the blame anywhere other than at the hands of Putin and his regime and the Russian fe Federation I, I in this I, instance in terms of their attack on Ukraine. Okay. So we can be um, and are unequivocal on that and, matter. And agree with you that when, when there are votes made, there's a top line and then there's lots of other information underneath that, that, that all MEPs are voting on. Um, and I think at the time of 2015, when MEPs voted um, to abstain on condemning human rights in Russia and around that annexation of Crimea, um, we heard that there was a, a zero-sum political game between Russia and the West that forced Ukraine into choosing to ally itself with one or the other. And the concern from Sinn Féin MEPs was around the EU's role in the conflict. Do you believe that's still the case, that the EU has a role in the current conflict that we're saying, seeing play out? No. There is only one party responsible for what we've seen over the past 12 days. And therefore, I think there's wider debates in terms of you know, the EU's role in terms of international affairs. But right now, um, we should be, and I think we are in terms of a political system in the Dáil, quite clearly and unequivocally saying that there is no two sides on this. This is a sovereign country, Ukraine, being, being invaded um, and brutalised um, by a much larger aggressive, um, aggressive neighbour. Uh, let's talk about, you know, briefly on our neutrality on this, Niall, because it has brought that into focus. And some would say there is a war currently on our neutrality. We don't have neutrality. We're deceiving ourselves, even believing for one minute that we're a neutral country. So at we this point... We are militarily neutral. Well, <laughs> so we're led to believe. But I mean, look, we have... But is this an important thing to, to, to remain as being militarily no, I, neutral? No, I, I, I think we've passed that point now, to be honest with you. We are part of Europe now. It was all right 20, 30 years ago. We could probably accept it to some degree. I think we're past that point now. You know, I mean, Why? we've got two choices. We either completely just get rid of the defence forces altogether. And there are many countries around the world with small populations that don't have a defence force or an army or else we pay them properly and we actually build up a decent uh, army or yeah, defense but can force. you pay an army properly and still remain neutral but 300 for 340 euro uh, recruits are getting currently at the moment you, you'd probably get more no. if you were on the pup i mean but what i'm what i'm suggesting is is that you you cannot be neutral in a situation as we're part of europe we're part of right. one country is that, so you is, cannot be neutral you can't be neutral if you're part of Europe, Bridget. So we are, we're, we're not politically neutral. We are very dependent on American multinationals in our country. We are very Western in our foreign policy orientation. We're simply not members.
members of NATO. But as EU members, we actually have, under the Lisbon Treaty, a commitment to come to the aid of any country attacked with all the power we have. So, for example, if Latvia, Lithuania or Estonia are rolled over by Russian tanks tomorrow, what do we say to them? Do we say we have a commitment to you. You were very good to us and showed solidarity with us during Brexit, but we really won't do anything for you now, or we give you non-lethal support. So I think there is a date with destiny coming. It's not about NATO, it's about our responsibility as okay. a European country. And I, don't, I think we shouldn't talk of it in terms of neutrality. We should first say to ourselves, what is a good security policy for the island of Ireland for the 21st century? That's where we start. We have finally had the commission on the, uh, on, on the armed forces. We need to start there. What is our security policy? Okay. And then move. Whereas we're inclined to wrap ourselves in neutrality without actually understanding that we're part of PESCO, we're part of a battle group, etc etc and we have our troops have served under NATO command. Our troops have served under NATO command in a peacekeeping capacity. Exactly. Uh, Verona mm. would you agree that it needs to stay that way that we can offer peacekeeping and peace enforcing support as being part of NATO? I, I'm actually quite conflicted myself I mean I've always believed our neutrality was very important and in recent weeks, like so many others, I find I'm questioning that. And, and the why honest are you questioning truth it? Is, well, because, you know, on one hand, we're saying to the Ukraine as part of the EU, well, look, we're going to c contribute 50 million and you continue to use your arms, we'll give you the arms to fight the Russians. I don't think anybody really believes that the Ukraine will defeat Russia. Do you, I, do you want so us I, to give, do you want to give us to give arms? No, no, we're giving non-military aid as, so as, as we said. Really make? I'm not saying I do. I'm saying well, I don't know. Well, it's actually I suppose it's taking a stance and defining what we are as a but country. It's not really taking a stance. If you're providing with providing them money to put petrol into jeeps or put petrol into tanks, or you're providing them money to buy arms, so what difference? You might as well just give them the the, the, the shells or the missiles. It makes no difference. It doesn't really. We're still we're still helping them, we're still assisting okay. them, and, and rightly so. And feeding the, the armaments industry and everything that goes with that, will you, Dee? Well, look, you know, first of all, let's not get confused now between the state, the present unfortunate state of our defence forces and the question of neutrality. It's they're important. Two, they're two separate, it is an important point. Excuse me now, I didn't cut across you. They're two separate questions, OK? You're getting, you're getting them confused in your mind. They're two separate questions. I'm not getting confused. Two, two, when, when I was Minister for Defence 13 years ago now, we were spending about almost 1% of GDP on the Defence Forces. It's now down to 0.2%. So we've let the Defence Establishment and the Defence Forces run down. The Commission has put forward a series of recommendations, including pay and conditions, command structure, weaponry, etc., cyber security. And they give two options, basically, either to move on to stage two, which would cost not billions, but a half a million a year extra. It's a million a year, a would billion a year at that? that I would be very much in favour of that. And but, we can then have a discussion. But not going, up to, not going up to the larger military. We can, we can have a discussion, we can have a discussion about phase three. But let me make this point. The second aspect, the, 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 the central aspect of Irish neutrality is that we are prohibited by the Constitution from joining common defence from participating at, in... At the moment. Yes, at the, at the moment. Now, now, the question is this. If you put a referendum uh, to the people 
and the government will have to take a neutral position because of the McKenna judgment. If you put a referendum, what you're saying to the people is, or what you're asking the people mm. is, you know, can, can, will you give the government the right, without consulting you, to go ahead and join any military alliance you wish? I, I have the more serious doubts as to whether that would be passed, quite honestly. If people were asked. And for good reason, okay. I think Irish people value our neutrality. And neutrality doesn't mean that we stand back as, you know, as benign spectators in terms of international conflicts. It's like about using our neutrality as a force for peace but in the world. And that's why um, I do think it is important that Ireland can adopt independent um, in, in foreign policy pos positions. And I think that is why our defence forces, when they partake in peacekeeping missions all over the world, that they're highly regarded, highly respected and contribute greatly to building peace in those regions. And just to say, yeah. absolutely, as a first step, regardless of our position, I believe it should happen in a, in, in a militarily neutral um, position, but our defence forces deserve to be paid and deserve to have the capacity in order to do their work. Bridget, briefly. So I, I think the world changed on the 24th of February, and I'm not sure that any of us can predict the kind of Europe we'll have in six months or a year's time. But in Versailles, at the end of this week, there is a meeting of the heads of European governments on defence. And there will come the other uh, scenario we need to think about. Trump gets back into the White House and decides no NATO. Then what, does, what do we do in Europe? We can't stand then. So I do think that we need to be very calm and take it bit by bit. I, I agree. Okay. Can I just say, finally, can I just say, we don't, we don't know where this goes eventually. Right. If you join a mutual defence association, or where will you be in a couple of years' time? European army. You, okay, you, you just we'll have to leave it there. The My thanks to Bridget Laffin. The rest of the panel will be staying on with me after the break. Fuel costs continue to store. Soar, stay with us. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. The government is unlikely to take any decisions around action aimed at reducing the soaring cost of energy this week, it's been suggested. Pressure is growing for the government to take steps that would offset some of the increases. Well, earlier, earlier today, Virgin Media News reporter Paul Quinn spoke to some members of the public at the pumps. What 20 years is like, just one day it's gone nearly, you know? Yeah, you have to think before you fill the tank. And before you take the car out, definitely, that's changed. I don't know what's going to be the end product. Anyway, it's the uh, home heating oil has gone berserk. About 75 quid, man. 
used to be about 65 or so. So it got to 10% on a tank of petrol, which is three or four times a week. Top going. Well, it is when you go home and turn on the electricity, and it's the same thing there, and the same thing with the oil in the house, the same thing everywhere else. But last Wednesday, I kind of panicked a little bit, and, and I filled it up. It's the first time I've ever filled it up. Um, so, you know, yeah, it, 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 it is certainly worrying. Well, joining me now to discuss this broadcaster, Niall Boylan, Fianna Fáil TD, Willie O'Dea, Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy, Independent TD, Verona Murphy, and Business Post business editor, Lorcan Allen. Um, Lorcan, you're welcome to the programme. To take you up on this issue, people are really, I mean, they've been feeling this price increase for some time now, but it's it spiralled, hasn't it, in recent days even, and it's likely to go up even further. Yeah, that's right, Claire. I mean, we were already dealing with inflation in the economy before the crisis in Ukraine erupted. Um, for January, inflation was at 5%, and we were really seeing that in our energy bills, mostly. People probably would have got their first big energy bills in the last month or so, mm -hmm. where gas prices, electricity prices were very high. Uh, oil prices had been creeping back up again as the economy was reopening, but over the last week, we've seen a real spike in, in, in both oil and gas again. And that's, I suppose, financial markets trying to figure out what it, whatever is happening in Ukraine, what that means for global financial markets, be it oil markets, gas markets, because Russia is such a big player in a lot of these key commodities like oil, gas, uh, and food as well, and some of those staples. So that, those are the areas where I think consumers are going to increasingly see this hit in their pockets, the fallout, economic fallout of what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, and yet we're hearing, Willie O'Dea, that there's no uh, government action yet on it. Well, I, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that because, uh, you know, when, when, when the initial government action was taken, the 200 euro uh, supplement, etc. I predicted at the time, in fact, I predicted in the doll mm. that the government would have to return to this matter again before the budget. Now, that was before Ukraine. I mean, so obviously I'm wondering why you're surprised this has happened because we, we, we've had Pascal Donoghue, who's been on the show here, saying, look, we're not in a position to chain fat excise. We're not doing those things. And the cost of living measures that the suite of measures that are in place will have to do. So there has been no move well, no, I'm surprised. yet. Well, I'm surprised. Well, to answer your question directly, I'm surprised because I, I, I read in the newspaper, uh, a newspaper of record today, that Leo Varadkar had undertaken that there would be. Yeah. That's what there the would be. white paper there would be. There would be. Well, he said, he said there he would, would be. No, 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 no. He when said, the white he paper said, comes back said, from the EU. He said, he said this, yeah, he said that, 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 that uh, action would be taken well in, advance, well in advance of the budget. In my view, look, well my, in my, of my the opinion, budget. my opinion, well, look, my, I understand that. My opinion is... No, we're, no, I'm, no, I'm no, talking about this week. I mean, the suggestion is that nothing will be done this week. Oh, this week, this week, this week, yes, of course. Look, I hear what you're saying. We're already behind the curve on this. I mean, the know. I know Many that. of the countries have I'm not already, for instance, okay. I'm not arguing with you. I've seen a list of the countries. I've seen a list of the countries that have reduced VAT. I don't need it. I've seen it. I've seen it. Absolutely. Well, I think that's the point. We are behind the curve and we really need to be ahead of it. We are seeing many, many operators, bus and truck operators, who are parked up because they are losing money. They are about to go bust. I think that was relayed to Minister Donoghue today. He was very non-committal, very disappointed. 
disappointing for the haulage sector, but also I called on them on Friday. I've sent them many texts in the last number of weeks informing them of what other European countries are doing. They're price freezing. They're removing excise duties. Like we have an excise duty, Claire, that encompasses VAT. It encompasses an aura charge, a biofuel charge. You know, we have uh, we have to add, add blue to the factor of the commercial diesel, which is a yeah, euro there's, there's plenty of costs. But the reality is that, that we are going to see families who won't be able to afford to actually drive to work very, very soon. If this goes, we're currently at two euros a litre in most, most of the country. One euro of that is government taxes. Now, today the Taoiseach said a number of times we're, on in, we're in unprecedented times and we must take unprecedented measures. But this, we're still waiting to hear about the measures. This needs to be Nile, an emergency yeah, measure. Now boiling on that. Well, um, Verona rightly said, Hungary have already taken steps, for example, to cap it at 131. I think they've extended that to May. But I spotted an interesting piece today. That, that would be us pulling it back from what it is now. So skirting Absolutely. On there's no reason why we can't right reduce... There's no reason why we can't take a temporary measure. But there was an interesting piece today that back in 2008... Do you believe the politicians when they say no. they'll take action on this? No, but they should. But I don't believe they will. And Michal Martin already said two weeks ago that nothing was going to happen between now and the budget, although Leo Varadkar today seems to contradict him by suggesting something will happen before the budget as soon as he gets an EU white paper so we can all work in unison together. Which is, I mean, I thought we wanted to be the first to do everything. When COVID came along, we could bring in laws overnight. But I just want to make a very important point. In 2008, it was $143 for a barrel of Brent crude oil. Right Now here we are, and the price of the pump was 125 it's now 131 today, yet the price is €2. Euro. Now, a lot of that has to do with the dollar exchange back in 2008, but it's also in those days, of course, um, you know, green taxes were just a glint in Gormley's mm. eye. So, I mean, not only that, we have green taxes, we have excise duty, which actually increased since then as well, and obviously the VAT rate has increased because the VAT has taken on, on the total cost. So basically, yeah. 120, as rightly pointed out, it's actually more, it's 120 of this is actually the government's money. They could easily reduce it, they could easily cap it, they could do it from midnight tonight if they really was, if there was actually some sort of... I'm sure how quickly, McCarthy, on that, I mean, uh, what, what we've always heard from government is that these are Europe-wide decisions, you know, we, we, we row in with those decisions so essentially we have to wait for that before to be rubber stamped before we can do it here no that's in relation to VAT but as has been said the government could take an initiative tomorrow in relation to excise um, duty um, and they haven't and the last time I was on this show we were talking about a cost of living crisis for many families that I'm talking about that is now a cost of living emergency because we have to remember that in this um, country as well as what are now crippling costs in relation to motor fuel home heating costs electricity costs we also have the exorbitant rents that families are paying the childcare costs that families are paying all of those are additional um, costs that uh, costs on basically living um, uh, um, that are yeah. in, in and that are that, imposed on, about, on workers and I families. Talk about and here's a chance, but this is important because this is a chance for the first time since this government took power to say we actually understand the lives that those who we represent are actually living. And a simple measure would be in relation to excise understand. duty, and they we, need we, to do it this way. Politicians actually, are disconnected from the general actually, public because they don't have to worry actually, about putting €50 Euro in their car every day. Actually, they don't actually, have to worry actually, about actually, that. Do you have to worry about that, Willie? Just, no, we just, don't. Just, just, do you just, have to worry about putting money in the car to get from A to B? What do you know about me? Well, you're on expenses, Willie. I mean, you know, let's be honest with yeah. people. You get expenses, I mean, so you don't I, have to worry about it. I was always honest with people. Out, I, I, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't always say this. I, I had a self-employed man today on yeah. the air with me, and he has his own bread van. He yeah. reckons he's going to be out of business very short because he can't afford to How put many people do you think I talked to in the last 48 hours or something to be out of business? I'm not trying to insult yeah. you, but what I'm saying I'm, is I'm, politicians in general are disconnected from the people Well, I'm not disconnected. I've been elected for 40 years. I have not disconnected. I believe they're disconnected. Unless you think the people in Limerick are fools. No, because when you can be... I am not disconnected. 
to bring just, you back just to in. Add to one point, just to add to one point at that bit. The Very briefly. Now have, the government now are able, as a result of a recent decision by the European Commission, to reduce VAT at any time on, 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 on energy. You'd expect to see something happen I would, tomorrow I would, then, would I you? Would, I, would expect, like I, would, I would do it. I would do it immediately if I were in the position, but I'm only a backbencher. Oh, you're only a backbencher, yes. Lorcan. Um, let's talk about the, the food supply as well and the food issues, because we heard that call to farmers to start producing grain because of this, this crisis that's coming down the line. We know Ukraine is a big um, grain, um, you know, grain exporter and that we're going to have to react to that and, and to do something about it. Yeah, I think uh, the news that maybe farmers would be asked to grow more grain, I think it was sort of a harken back to the days of, of World War II and World War One, And, you know, it's kind of quirky in a way. How realistic is it? Probably not massively. Uh, what it could actually deliver for the country. Farmers are generally quite specialists. My own father is a farmer. Mm. He's a bee farmer. The, the idea of him going planting his land is, is probably not realistic. It's a small farm anyway. Um, and the time it would take to do that the time, and the success of it. The time and the technical expertise, machinery, seeds. And see, this is the problem with what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, because it's such a big exporter of all these basic commodities, uh, you know, wheat supply is clearly going to be impacted. So we say in Europe we might grow more wheat, but we need fertilizer to grow that wheat. Russia is one of the biggest fertilizer exporters in the world. It already said today, their ministry, interior ministry announced that they uh, were to halt all exports of fertilizer to the world. The CEO of the largest fertilizer company in the world, Yara, was on the BBC today saying that we are heading into a global food crisis because of if, if Russia shuts down its exports to the world. And that's where the longer term impact is. Consumers are seeing it at the pumps at the minute, but the longer term is, is very serious where this could go in terms yeah, of food. It's serious where it could go and just on, on, on the cost of it and that people should expect now to pay a lot more for food, Verona. Well, absolutely. And I'm very concerned about it. But I will say the one good thing about this is that the government statement shows that they are actually now regarding or taking cognizance of how important rural Ireland is and the indigenous sector of farming. And I think the reality here is we can't just overnight, I mean, farmers are sowing as we speak. There's huge activity. Next week is going to be too late to give a directive. And farmers want to know, will the new cap agreement be halted? Will convergence right. be halted? Will we look at the greening policies? All those things will come into play if we really expect farmers right. to change their minds and put 56,000 hectares that has gone out of tillage back into tillage. All right. We'll have to leave it there after the break. Soaring accommodation costs for St. Patrick's Day visitors to Ireland. Stay with us. Well, after two years of virtual St. Patrick's Day celebrations, hotels are charging close to €1,000 for two nights as cities brace for an influx of tourists. My panel is still here with me to discuss this. Anyone looking to get a little break away or, you know, enjoy that extra bank holiday that we're getting this year, Lorcan, will know all about uh, the cost of, of a mini break. It's become extortionately high in this country. Yeah, it's, it is expensive. Like most things in the economy, it's gone up as well. And there's probably two reasons for that. There's the general inflation that the hotel and hospitality industry is experiencing, but also the hospitality industry is really playing catch up after two very difficult years. So it's perhaps probably not surprising that we're seeing a bit of cost inflation. And unfortunately, it's the consumer that has to, to foot the bill for, for this. 
Yeah. Um, I, think, I think Ireland was uh, always expensive, wasn't it? When we were, if we're being realistic about this, and all that's happening here is the obvious. It's a free market. I mean, if you go to Ryanair, Aer Lingus, or any particular, anybody, anybody, doesn't matter where you want to go, you're going to double the price when it comes to St. Patrick's Day, midterm breaks, summer. It's always the way. I looked on Booking.com today. A thousand euros a bit much. That's a really nice, swanky hotel. You'll probably get somewhere for about six or seven hundred for three days. I think it's just a city centre hotel. For, well, I know they've doubled the price. I looked yeah, for this week and next week, it's double the price, roughly double the price most hotels and look they've got to pay their staff extra money they're working on bank holidays the days that people would normally have off i understand they're taking advantage of the situation but it's a free market isn't it yeah i think it's thrown on that i suppose we're trying to attract tourists into the country we're trying to pick up from um, you know the difficult times acutely uh, challenging time for the hospitality industry during the pandemic well, i think matt and i would probably agree on this that you know we've both been over and back to brussels i think we're quite competitive as a country from a hotel stay perspective but i do agree with paul we they've been closed for two years it was devastating for the sector it's a huge employer and they've had huge cost increases heating energy you know you can't switch off a bulb here and switch off a light there and try and economize Every, they have huge costs and, and I do think they're recouping but I, I don't agree with opportunistic pricing I will say that but I'm not so sure and I checked a few before I came on the programme knowing that it was I didn't find any that were at that price I no, didn't no, I yeah, generally though people and, looking, and I will say generally, I won't though, name Bruno, the people looking, looking ahead to the summer are fine, finding that, that if they the do same, choose to with, stay at home that, that they're going to be the paying a lot of money COVID, for it. and I don't think they'll find it cheaper anywhere in Europe I will say I'll go to the Canaries it's much cheaper I understand, I understand what people, people are saying, but there is a particular problem in Ireland, and it is the during high peak um, um, periods that costs shoot through the roof. And the difficulty, no, but the difficulty, difficulty with that Nile is that tourists who do happen to be coming next week or have already planned, they may not come a second time, and that will have an impact. What I will say this is though, in County Monaghan, there's much better value to be had. I encourage people to come and spend the weekend and they'll enjoy a fantastic St Patrick's. They'll be delighted with that to Carrick Macross, Matt. Um, but just on the subject, Willie, do you think you know it should be there should be a little bit more government incentive? I mean, there, there's been all this call from the hospitality industry for, to cut uh, the VAT rate. Um, you know, it, it 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 didn't it wasn't cut to kind of incentivise more people to go and um, book a hotel stay when the pandemic no. emerging from the pandemic. No, it was cut to 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 help the hospitality industry survive. And it the, went back the, the, up again. The pandemic, it went back up again, yes. But the, the, I agree with Larkin. I mean, there's a number of reasons. There's the general inflation. There's also also the the catch up situation after the after the pandemic. But you know, Matt is right. I mean, people would want to bear in mind that you know all studies suggest that one of the main factors in people choosing a hotel are price price. You know, and you can gouge people only once. I mean, people, a lot of people might decide not to come back. Mm. But let me also say that if you mentioned the idea of 500 euros for a hotel in Limerick, people would think you were off your head. <laughs> no, if you priced it recently, you might find it's more expensive than you think, Willie. Well, God, I'm glad I don't have to stay in a There's hotel also, in Limerick. Also incredible, Lord demand is driving the situation as well, because you speak to anyone in the hotel industry, um, they're seeing enormous pent-up demand coming through. And, of course, people have saved a lot of money uh, and they're eager to get back out there. And also we have the international tourists coming back into the market here in Ireland. That's what I wanted to ask you, actually, with, with this ongoing situation in Ukraine, um, there is the possibility, isn't there, that those you know, American tourists that we're so reliant on here um, will decide not to come to Europe potentially this summer? It's a very interesting question and probably one we won't see play out until the summer months. Um, the airlines so far have said they haven't seen any impact on booking patterns by the conflict in Ukraine. Um, 
people do tend to go to safe places uh, when a conflict like this, ar this arises. So your very well-established destinations like you know Spain, Italy, those countries do tend to do well out of, of a conflict of this nature. But it will, it'll all, I suppose, bear out. I, in, I do in the think the ahead. story is greatly exaggerated. But I mean, the story today of a thousand euro for two nights, as I said, I looked for three nights uh, between the, I think it was the 17th and the 19th. And um, it was roughly around 790 euros is what I was seeing. And I, I looked oh, for the same week previous and it was 350. So it's about double the price. And I think, you know, they're taking advantage of a situation which they've always done. And yeah. I think we have very high standards, particularly in Wexford. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay, well, look, we've got the two. Um, I mean, I don't know if we need Fall to Ireland or anyone else. No, I don't mind. think so. I think I should mention Cork just in case I get upset about this Okay, well, look, there we'll have to leave it. My thanks uh, to all my panel tonight, to Niall, to Willie, to Matt, Verona, and to Lorcan. Um, from all the late team here, good night and do take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.